Welcome to my podcast. I'm Arnie Sabatelli, and this is Hemingway Word for Word, in which I hope to offer episodes on many of Hemingway's short stories and novels. I will attempt to provide a complex analysis of his writing, pushing to consider ideas all too often neglected by traditional readings of his work. I will occasionally reference, critique, or debate with articles, films, books written about him. But mostly, these are my own ideas, distilled from many years of reading, writing about, and teaching Hemingway to college and high school students. Before settling in, I recommend reading or rereading the work at hand and having a copy of the text with you as you listen. I hope you enjoy these episodes and that you will consider subscribing to the podcast or giving me your support with a small donation. For today's episode, I'll take a close look at The Battler from In Our Time, a story Hemingway only added to the collection when his then-publisher, Horace Liverite, refused to include Up in Michigan because of its subject matter, date rape. This was a story Gertrude Stein famously did not like, deeming it, quote, inaccroachable from the French meaning unhangable, as in a painting you wouldn't be able to hang on display in a public gallery. We'll take a look at Up in Michigan in my next podcast. Hemingway later referred to The Battler, though, as one of his favorite stories, and while I think Up in Michigan still belongs in the collection and should be considered alongside of all the stories of In Our Time, I'm so glad he wrote this story in its place. Who knows if The Battler ever would have been written if not for Liverite's rejection of Up in Michigan. I'm particularly grateful to the story of The Battler since it offers one of the most overt and compelling uses of Carl Jung's division of the human psyche into its two parts, the anima and the animus. This is a division I've looked to in each of the stories I've addressed so far in this podcast, and I see it as an essential dynamic in understanding Hemingway's work as fully as possible. The battler finds Nick Adams thrown into a nightmarish landscape where he encounters Ad Francis, the imbalanced, literally and figuratively character who is perhaps an eerie, terrifying rendition of himself. I suggest you take some time now to read or reread the story, The Battler. Unlike other stories I've critiqued in this podcast, this story begins squarely in the point of view of the main character, Nick Adams. Quote, Nick stood up. He was all right. He looked up the track at the lights of the caboose going out of sight around the curve. Just as Nick hears the boats in the dark, quote, getting farther ahead in the mist all the time in Indian camp here, he finds himself in another dark place, confused, but now without the comforting arms of his father around him. The train vanishing around the corner also reminds us of Marjorie rowing away in the darkness while he lay there feeling as if everything had gone to hell inside him in the end of something. The battler clearly echoes or mirrors and in some ways even reenacts the earlier Nick Adams stories in the collection. And looking forward, we will also find echoes and reflections of Nick Adams stories to come. As in Indian camp, here he is in the darkness, moving down a kind of path, the railroad track reminiscent of the logging road from that earlier story. 
and there will be firelight in the darkness like those lanterns of Indian camp, and he will touch and feel and look to images of his hands holding, touching, also initiated in that earlier story. And as in Indian camp and the end of something, Nick is to experience something that will significantly work to shape him into the artist we will find in the later stories, Cross Country Snow and Big Two-Hearted River. But before Nick ever meets the other two characters in the story, Ad and Bugs, or hears the sad story of Ad and his wife, who, quote, looked enough like him to be his twin, the story pulses with meaning. Right after noticing the train vanishing, leaving him utterly alone in the, quote, ghostly swamp, he takes careful note that there was water on both sides of the track, then Tamarack Swamp. This mirroring image, what's on one side of the track looking exactly the same as what's on the other side of the track, repeats throughout the opening pages. Nick noting, quote, the swamp was all the same on both sides of the track, or, quote, it was high and dark on both sides of the track. As he walks along, thinking he must get to somewhere, earlier noting it was dark and he was a long way off from anywhere, I get the strong sense that not only has he landed in the midst of an eerie nowhere, far removed from human existence, but that Nick is painting it in richly symbolic terms. And the more I read the story and think about it, the less realistic it feels, the more dreamlike and haunting and disturbing, as if he is walking through his own psyche, trying to find a way out, a way forward, out of this nowhere. And in this nightmarish landscape, he walks on a kind of fulcrum, a balancing point where the bleak, ghostly swamp extends outward endlessly on both sides. Think for a moment of the woman in Hills Like White Elephants, noting the two very different landscapes on either side of the river, one lush and green, the other dry and barren, as she contemplated whether to succumb to the dry, barren logic of the man or to embrace her artistic awakening and choose to give birth. Nick has no choice in this place. There is but one way forward, and while the landscape mirrors itself on either side of the tracks, Nick can't even see his own reflection when he attempts to look at his black eye in a puddle. It's too dark here to even see himself, which contributes to the emotion of deep existential loneliness and separation from the things of the world we feel throughout the story. He is utterly removed from the essential elements of life, lost alone in a singular, terrifying darkness. Hemingway suggests, or perhaps Nick himself notes, that he is walking through his own dark soul, one that has abandoned the rich, quote, deep water of a love relationship with Marjorie and lost his own balancing anima. And here, as in all of Hemingway's writing, we find a range of chiasmuses that help to frame and express a complex range of meaning in a painterly way. Walking along that track, the swamp a mirror image of itself on either side, Nick is himself at the center of a kind of imagistic chiasmus. A striking verbal chiasmus appears halfway down the second page. We find these words on both sides of the track, then bridge then water, then the chiasmus folding outward, water, bridge on both sides of the track. And in the middle of this, we find, quote, Nick kicked a loose spike and it dropped. 
Several things stand out here for me. First is that even in a place with so few things to see or respond to and with everything the same all around him, Nick still looks to his landscape with artistic intensity and finds a way to give it shape and order and to say something about it, or rather, to say something through it, where he finds a way to understand himself more meaningfully. Also, the loose spike dropping down into the water far below emphasizes the danger he is in and just how precarious this journey is and has become after being thrown off the train into the Tamarack Swamp of northern Michigan. That falling spike is so different than the earlier image that came in the heart of a chiasmus in Indian camp, Nick with his father's arms around him in the rowboat on the lake in the pre-dawn darkness. Here, no one holds on to him except for Ad's menacing grip he will soon feel. And he has nothing to hold on to, and though he cannot see it, he is moving along at a dizzying height. All these details speak to Nick having entered into a place of great danger, fear, darkness, what he refers to as, quote, ghostly. Even as his artistic juices are clearly flowing here, all those things affiliated with the anima, he also relies heavily on his animus, on logic, on reason, to survive this place and to decide what must be done, much as his father, the doctor, does in Indian camp. He works, notice, to calculate exactly how far he might be from Mancelona, the next city up the track. He goes to the water and carefully washes the grit from his injured hands, much as his father washes his hands to prepare for surgery in Indian camp. He does his best to soak his injured knee, and he works as a good wilderness survivalist might to assess his injuries, feeling himself in the dark, finding his swollen eye. He also recounts for himself and for us exactly what has happened, using logic to argue that since he, quote, fell for it once, he'll not fall for it again, creating a syllogistic argument, concluding he was too naive and that it was a, quote, kid thing to fall for it. The brakeman's taunt. In exactly these kinds of situations, as the doctor, who doesn't pay attention to the pregnant woman's screams because they are, quote, not important, Nick shows us that his logic-based animus psyche is functioning well. Still, in the midst of all this animus-based thinking and reasoning, we find artistic and anima-based usages of language. One example of this is the way Hemingway, through Nick, uses forms of the word get, both here and throughout the story. The brakeman says, I got something for you. Nick thinks he will get him someday. When referring to his shiner, he thinks that was all he had gotten out of it. Ad later says, I'll get him, and you got to be tough. And Nick asks him about being crazy, saying, how does it get you? Ad, just before Bugs knocks him out, asks Nick, how the hell do you get that way? All these gets and gots and gottens, though, essentially the same word, convey an array of different meanings. There's get him, in the sense of enacting revenge, got to, as in I ought to, I've got something for you, as in I have, and then we find got, as in gaining or acquiring something, or becoming one way, as how the hell do you get that way, or similarly, Nick asking Ad, how does it get you? being overcome, being overwhelmed by something, like Ad's insanity. That Nick slash Hemingway settle on a single word with so many registers of different meaning feels similar to what we see in A Cat in the Rain, where the woman uses multiple words across two languages to refer to the same thing. 
Here again, early in the story, we also find a sentence that stands out as having clear artistic intent and intensity. Referring to his black eye, he thinks, quote, he wished he could see it, could not see it looking into the water, though. It was dark, and he was a long way off from anywhere. Here we find something that Hemingway does consistently throughout his work, the breaking of normative syntax to suggest a far richer level of significance or meaning. That ungrammatical sentence, quote, could not see it looking into the water, intensifies a range of emotions and meanings. Gone is he, even, just as his reflection is absent, as if Nick is speaking from a place of unclear or unknown identity, even as he inhabits this misty, dark, unknown place. Also, that first phrase, he wished he could see it, is very nearly mirrored in the second, taking out the two he's and the word wished and adding just the not, the negative, that nearly exact repetition, like the exact mirror imagery on both sides of the track, also underscores the lack of a true reflection and without the more grammatical phrase, we also get a sense of Nick's discomfort and fear, something that seems far more significant, more symbolic to him than just being on a track a few miles from Mancelona. What follows, he was a long way from anywhere, is also quite charged and provocative, especially given that, using his animus, he notes exactly how far he may be from Mancelona, but to his anima, he is lost and alone in a dark place with no reflection, no clear identity. Given that he has broken up with Marjorie, I find a further implication that he has lost his reflecting half, his balancing half, and he seems as disturbed by that lack as he is by anything else. But upon stepping out of the darkness and into the light of Ad and Bug's fire, Nick may well find a kind of reflection of himself, albeit a terrifying one. When Nick first encounters Ad, Ad eerily ignores Nick, just continuing to stare into the fire, almost as if he knows Nick is coming all along, and giving the story yet another nightmarish quality. Only when Nick is quite close to him does he note Nick's presence, and soon they will get even closer when Ad asks Nick to monitor his abnormally slow heart rate. This close proximity and their intimate contact are a first sign to me that Nick and Ad have more than just a lot of things in common, that they mirror and echo each other, and Ad may well play the role of the reflection of himself Nick, quote, could not see in the puddle. While Nick can't see his own battered face in the puddle, he does see Ad's battered, misshapen face in the firelight, a reflection of what maybe he has become when the violence acted upon him by the brakeman and since his breakup with Marjorie, they leave him feeling as if, quote, everything had gone to hell inside. Everything has surely gone to hell internally and externally for Ad, who is even out of balance, asymmetrical, since one ear is missing. In those first few moments of their encounter, they seem alike in more than just physical appearance as well. Ad says, quote, I saw the bastard. Nick parrots him, the bastard. Ad says, it must have made him feel good to bust you, and Nick uses that word bust, saying, I'll bust him. And here Ad encourages Nick's desire to retaliate with violence of his own, as if he is a kind of dark inner voice magnifying and extending Nick's animus-driven anger. When Nick copies Ad's, all you kids are tough with, 
you've got to be tough, Admore forcefully acknowledges his role as Nick's inner voice saying, that's what I said, confirming he is the source of Nick's emotion, that what he represents fuels Nick's fire, giving him the violent posturing and vengeful, retaliatory drive he is experiencing. So when Nick does finally notice Ad's disfigured face, it unnerves him. The missing ear even, quote, sickens him, which could well be Nick's other side, his anima, responding viscerally to the ugly, violent part of himself he has awakened here in the depths of the swamp, here in the darkest part of his psyche. And there's another thing that pushes me to think of Nick as a mirror of Ad. They are both, quote, men without women, the title of Hemingway's second book of short stories. We will soon find out that Ad's wife even looked enough like him to be his twin. And so Nick and Ad are now like twins, and as such, are like the dark, shadowy, ghostly swamp on both sides of the track. And in an uncharacteristic move, Hemingway seems to be using a richly symbolic name for Ad. Notice his name actually appears inside of Nick's name, right at the center, Nicholas Adams. Ad is one telling syllable of Nick's very name. Consider, too, that in Latin, ad means against, as in argumentum ad hominem, argument against the person, not the argument. Who knows where artistic intention comes from? And here, perhaps, I'm adding an unintended layer, for most scholars know that Ad Wolgast was an actual boxer whom Hemingway surely knew about, and his story is quite similar to Ad Francis's. Wolgast spent his last days in a mental institution and even escaped for a time to live in the woods before he was caught. And given all this animus-based behavior, it's no surprise that the one who punches and tosses Nick from the train is the brake man, B-R-A-K-E man. If you think of this as B-R-E-A-K man, we find both a reference to the broken man Nick is about to meet, and perhaps on his way to becoming if he isn't careful, and the first iteration of men hitting or trying to hit or break other men in the story. The brake man hits Nick. Ad tries to hit Nick. Nick wants to hit the brake man. Bugs hits Ad. This is a story of men enacting violence on men, of male-on-male violence. The story, ultimately, of all wars. Men initiating outbreaks of sanctioned, quote, insane violence. We read about it daily concerning Russia's unprovoked war on Ukraine and the insanity of the male-based, animus-driven violence of the First World War left an indelible mark on the young Hemingway. For me, the story evokes a nightmarish stepping into the direct center of human, male, violence, exploring it at its source. A brief aside, here, as is almost always the case with this fiction, I would argue, we find Hemingway's art working to unravel and know and critique and consider something he didn't find an adequate way to do in his own life. Hemingway loved to box, found an urgent thrill in witnessing and participating in acts of war. He referred to bullfighting as, quote, like a ringside seat at the war. He famously punched out the great American poet Wallace Stevens in Key West only because Stevens was quite large and no fighter. In his lived life, Hemingway was a braggart, a womanizer, prone to violence, but in his art, this self dissolves and is explored with tenderness and care. Perhaps it's because the ad in Hemingway was so apparent in his life, and Hemingway was so aware of him lurking in the ghostly swamp of his own psyche that he created such a strong dialogue with it through his art.
But returning to the story at hand, before Bugs even arrives on stage, Hemingway has already instigated a range of complex, compelling meaning. The story could easily end with Nick holding Ad's wrist, counting his heartbeat, and it would be a powerful work of fiction. For that dramatic moment is so rich and interesting, and it has such strong echoes and mirroring scenes from other stories, especially the end of something. Remember the repetition of I knows in that story that lead to Marjorie's famous question, isn't love any fun, to which Nick adds that final N-O, no. This time N-O, not K-N-O-W. Here we find an eerie reenactment of that. Ad replies to Nick's question about being crazy, his how does it get you with, quote, I don't know. And then, quote, when you got it, you don't know. Soon he interjects, you know me, don't you? And Nick's N-O, no, here might well make Nick feel as if he is in a strange, dreamlike, nightmarish kind of reenactment of the very moment when he lost Marjorie, his own balancing twin. And the K-N-O-W-N-O's continue. You know how I beat them? N-O, no. And got a watch? No. Here we find again painterly repetitions, all these no's, news, N-O, no's, working in the way painters use shape, color, line, we also see that Hemingway, again, is focusing on knowledge, on knowing. I think, too, of Nick's father, the doctor telling him emphatically, you don't know, in Indian camp. In other words, he wants Nick to realize he is ignorant of the medical facts and truths he's about to teach him. But then Nick acquires other registers of knowledge, a different kind of knowing at the end of that story, a knowledge that's carried on into the end of something, making the breakup all the more painful since he knows he loves Marjorie, even admitting it when answering her tricky question, isn't love any fun? No. In other words, love isn't fun, it's more than that. It's greater than just that. The Battler, as with all the stories in the collection, including the inner chapters, works on its own terms, but it also gathers in and reflects the story it precedes and extends on into the stories to come, the metaphorical complexity deepening with each new work. Here, Adz's I don't know speaks to his inability to understand and appreciate how losing his twin, his other balancing self, his anima, leaves him, quote, crazy, even as it reminds Nick and us of Nick's inability to admit more emphatically what he does know in his heart about his love for Marjorie. Immediately following this barrage of no's and N-O no's, Ad tells him his secret is his slow heartbeat. And then, quote, the man took hold of his hand, take hold of my wrist. And Nick notes that his wrist is thick and the muscles bulged above the bone. Then, quote, Nick felt the slow pumping under his fingers. This unnerving, intimate moment resounds with echoes of other stories, even as it evokes meaning that works on its own. The woman in Cat in the Rain, who wants to grow her hair long to pull it into a tight bun that she can feel, just as Nick feels Ad's blood moving through his veins. And in a strikingly similar image, Ad's missing ear is described as being, quote, tight against the side of his head, just like the woman's bun she hopes to make in Cat in the Rain, that word tight, and that image, which becomes so important in that later story, is initiated here. In the final story, Big Two-Hearted River, we not only find the word heart in the title, echoing Ad's slow-pumping heart, 
but Nick's fishing rod is frequently described as, quote, pumping and alive. Looking to earlier stories, this also mirrors Nick putting his hand in the warm water at the end of Indian camp, feeling that warmth in the cool chill of morning. Again, he is taking hold of, touching something, viscerally connected to something. And here, if Ad does represent some ugly dynamic at play inside of Nick, as I think he does, then this coming together, this taking hold, those words take hold, echoing twice in consecutive lines, suggests that the masculine violence and rage embodied in Ad has surely taken hold of Nick, and it is close enough to count and feel and know its slow, steady pulse. Ad's slow heart also speaks to his incompleteness, his imbalance, the slow heart suggesting that he is not fully human, that since he is halved, his heart, that fundamental, deeply symbolic organ beating at about half the normal rate. We also soon find the randomly beating up of others, which speaks directly to this inhumanity in him, his, quote, craziness. A story already rich in complexity and disturbing imagery becomes even deeper and more complex still when, quote, a man dropped down the railroad embankment and came across the clearing to the fire, and Bugs arrives on the scene. When Nick first sees Bugs from a distance, he refers to him as, quote, a man, contrasting to him steadily referring to Ad as a, quote, little man. This is the only time in the story, however, that Nick would be using this tag, man, for Bugs. What follows is mostly a back and forth between the words Negro and the N-word, with one use of his name, Bugs, as a tag. Before going any further, I do feel the need to address the use of that word in the story, and when teaching the story, this is often the thing I need to address before anything else, for it does present us with an uncomfortable challenge. I don't want to downplay its use, nor go out of my way to try to defend Hemingway, the man who surely used the word in his own lexicon, but I will say that if we know nothing else about Hemingway's craft, it is that he was meticulous in his selection of words and in their placement, and especially in their repetitions, something I've focused on a lot in my own scholarship and in these podcasts. Think of how meticulous he is when choosing tags for his characters and stories I've addressed so far in these episodes. While the husband, George, is named in A Cat in the Rain, the woman is only, quote, the American wife, and while the man in Hills Like White Elephants is the American... The woman is only, quote, the girl with him. Let's assume that Hemingway sensed an artistic need for the use of this ugly, dehumanizing word for bugs, that he considered it an important and relevant thing to include in the story. Given that the first tag he uses is man, and given that all of the story is firmly grounded in Nick's point of view, it's also fair to assume that these tags are meant to tell us something about Nick, something relevant to Nick and to what he's struggling with throughout the story. I think it's also important that Hemingway works so hard to firmly establish the symbolic link between Nick and Ad before he brings Bugs into the story. That word grows out of the context of everything that has preceded it, everything we see Nick struggling with throughout the first part of the story. So given that the story is dealing with dark, ghostly, violent, misshapen, ugly, crazy, imbalanced things, 
the N-word seems somehow fitting, since the word itself grows out of the ugly, violent history of enslaved Africans in America. It could well be that by witnessing Nick slip into using that word, seeing bugs in that way, despite his overt, kind manner, helps us to see that Nick is halfway inhabiting Ad's violent, ugly world. It's important to note that he doesn't always use that word, that at times he uses the politically appropriate word in Hemingway's time, Negro, and even one time his name, Bugs. Perhaps Nick uses that word just as he embraces other ugly, violent, animus-based aspects of his character, suggesting he has not fully embraced all of the ugliness and meaningless violence that possesses Ad. Bugs serves a range of significant functions in the story, taking an already poignant exploration of male and male violence and animus-only psyches to still deeper levels of meaning. His polite, respectful, nurturing manner can be seen as a classically female role, cook, housekeeper, nurturer. But it also helps underscore another facet of humanity we haven't seen at all yet in the story, caring, sensitivity, a desire for peace rather than continued perpetual conflict and violence. And certainly the backstory he provides to Nick, after he has knocked Ed unconscious, is critically important to the story. That Ed is crazy because he is separated from his wife. How she sends him money, and note how he, quote, gets money from her, another use of that word get, coming toward the end of the story. Bugs also conveys the information of her looking enough like him to be his own twin, quote, in a subtle and telling manner. First, he repeats the gossip as if it were truth. Quote, his sister was his manager, and they was always being written up in the papers about brothers and sisters and how she loved her brother and how he loved his sister, and then they got married in New York, and that made a lot of unpleasantness. To which Nick replies, I remember about it. Then, after getting Nick to acknowledge that he knows that version of the story and likely believes it, Bug adds, sure, that sure, a kind of momentary acknowledgement that Nick, of course, believes the gossip. Then, Bug says, of course, they wasn't brother and sister, no more than a rabbit, but there was a lot of people didn't like it either way. Here, I would argue that Bugs is instructing Nick about truth versus gossip, though he wants to emphasize that she, quote, looked enough like him to be his twin, and that this fact has a lot to do with him going crazy. In a story where Nick first notices the twin landscapes on either side of the tracks and then finds his own twin using even a part of his name, this detail is particularly striking. As I've mentioned in other podcasts, Hemingway repeatedly uses the image of deep, powerful love as a kind of twinning, a way of finding a part of yourself, of becoming whole and complete in a Jungian sense only when you are with the other. These are especially strong motifs in A Farewell to Arms, and for whom the bell tolls. Given that Nick has lost Marjorie and is also alone, halved in the wilderness suggests that he too is crazy, is incomplete. Bugs also seems a lot like the woman in Cat in the Rain when describing how he met Ad in jail. We find six uses of the word like to tell about his first meeting. I liked him. He likes to think I like seeing him. I like living like a gentleman and a bit further on repeating his line, quote, she looks enough like him to be his own twin, and later he notes that Ad took such a liking to you. The woman's repetitions in Cat in the Rain, she liked, she liked, she liked, in reference to the padrone, may well have grown out of this first repetitive use of the word like in the collection. Bugs also looks over to where Ad is lying down, breathing heavily, 
an image of Nick laying on the beach, Marjorie rowing away, or George laying in bed reading while the woman goes out to get that kitty. So Bugs here becomes more affiliated with the other artist characters in the stories, even more like Nick himself in Indian camp, moving away from his father, putting his hand in the water, looking hard at the jumping bass. Though Bugs is also, remember, yet another male character enacting violence though with his artfully crafted whalebone-handled blackjack, so, though he seems to embody certain aspects of the anima, he also is capable of and ultimately acts in a more animus-based manner. In point of fact, his logical approach to dealing with bugs, while certainly sound from an argument standpoint, if I knock him out, then he can't hurt anyone, and I know how to hit him so as not to disfigure him anymore, therefore, I'll do the knocking out, fails the test in all other ways and is certainly making ads still more crazy since the repeated blows to his head he has endured as a boxer are surely, at least in part, responsible for his condition. So here we find, as with the man in Hills Like White Elephants, a valid argument that fails in significant ways. The man's argument in Hills was, we were fine before you were pregnant, terminate the pregnancy, all will be fine again, a place where logic fails just as the doctor's answers to Nick's questions at the end of Indian camp cannot give Nick what he later finds in the imagistic poem he creates for himself. And to get Freudian for just a moment, to hit Ad with a blackjack and take a minute and Google what this small weapon looks like and you'll find an overtly phallic image, seems particularly fitting for this story that deals with the ugly and vicious cycle of male-on-male violence that so many young men are born into, what we refer to these days as toxic masculinity, something Hemingway himself was surely a victim of in his life, if not in his art. It seems almost comedic that Bugs would hit Ad with a phallus. If I had to choose a painter or mood this story reminds me of, I'd choose a Goya, something like Saturn devouring his son. The dark, nightmarish tone of that work feels so much like the world we enter when reading The Battler, a deeply disturbing story that makes us uneasy for a range of reasons, from Ad's horrific, earless, mutilated face to Nick's repeated use of the N-word to the vicious cycle of male-on-male violence. If the bass jumping in the water and leaving a circle speaks to Nick's awareness of the circle of life and death as a calming, beautiful, even exhilarating discovery that makes him feel quite certain he will never die, the circle of men breaking other men in this story stands as a terrifying alarm bell for the still young Nick, who will soon see this dynamic play out in the ugliest form with all the battlers on the battlefields of Europe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Hemingway Word for Word. Next week we will look at Up in Michigan, another jarring and disturbing short story that Hemingway fully intended to include in this collection. Take care. If you've been enjoying my responses to Ernest Hemingway, you might also enjoy reading my posts on my Substack, JourneyCasts. There I write about my experiences as a teacher, short takes on a range of contemporary and modern poetry, fly fishing, the outdoors, 
the Adirondack Mountains, and many other topics. Check it out at arniesabatelli.substack.com. That's A-R-N-I-E-S-A-B-A-T-E-L-L-I at substack.com. I'd also like to mention another way you can support this podcast if you don't want to make a monthly contribution. You can go to buymeacoffee.com and find me there and make a one-time contribution. The address is buymeacoffee.com forward slash arniesabat7. Not sure why it's that, but it's A-R-N-I-E-S-A-B-A-T-7. And there you can find instructions on how to make a one-time contribution. Thanks again. Take care.